Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Chag Sameach. It's the first day of Passover, and coming up, we'll talk with the host of the popular Jewish-themed podcast, Unorthodox, New York Times Magazine writer from Springfield, Mass., Mark Oppenheimer. And we'll introduce you to the first female commissioner of the Massachusetts Department of Agriculture, South Deerfield's own Ashley Randall. But first, McGovernning. I thought his show was really good. I yeah. really liked it. Yeah. He was hilarious. And then I took him out to the Waitley Diner. And then we went, and then we went to a party in Greenfield. So it was, <laughs> I showed up at a party and they were like, do you mean former lieutenant gubernatorial candidate Jimmy Tingles at our party? The guy doesn't even drink, but he's a party animal. Yeah, he's great. It's time for our weekly check-in with the U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, Worcester's own Jim McGovern, in a weekly segment that I like to call McGovern with McGovern. And our engineer from NEPM here, Betsy Cordes, she wants to say, and this may be a better question from you to me, is the media coverage on the felony charges against the former president of the United States too hyped? Should we just drop this whole issue and talk more about something else? Well, I think it is, but uh, let me ask you that question. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. Our show got bumped on Tuesday, which, I mean, I know people really cared about what was going to happen, and they wanted to hear what District Attorney Alvin Bragg wanted to say, but I watched, while listening to NPR, CNN, the door of the courthouse for like an hour and there was a guy who looked like fabio who was walking from like two blocks away from the door of the courthouse and i just watched that guy that looked like fabio walk for like five minutes was it fabio it wasn't fabio i can't believe it's not bother but i waited until the very end when he got right close to the camera but until the very end i didn't know it wasn't fabio i was kind of sure it was you know and i'm glad that msnbc didn't cover his post arrest speech in mar-a-lago and and cnn cut off midway through because it was, it, it, it's, it's just a, a tirade of hate and grievances and just lies. And what happened, happened. A, a group of regular citizens who made up a grand jury looked at all the evidence and decided that they would indict the former president. The, the good news for Donald Trump is that this is probably the first time in his life he won the popular vote. But the bottom line is that it's a serious matter. But this is a legal question, uh, not a political question. And we got to let the process uh, work its way through. You spent a good deal of time in your district this week, Congressman, and you were at Red Apple Farm in Phillipston talking about proposed changes to the USDA's apple crop insurance policy that uh, the farmers there seemed to say would negatively impact local farmers. Tell me about these changes. I'm not sure what uh, the policy yeah, is and no, what would change. Right. There's some technical changes, but kind of the long and short of it is that some of the proposed changes, and they haven't been made yet, this is still in the process, would be more responsive to the apple growers in the western part of the country, the gigantic apple farms, and disadvantage some of the smaller apple growers here in New England. There'll be new reporting requirements, there'll be new, new criteria that might make it more difficult for them to get the coverage they need if a disaster were to hit. So it's complicated, but the bottom line is we want to make sure that our apple growers in New England get the necessary support they need if indeed disasters happen in this age of climate change. So would it, it would make the process more onerous to apply make, for this insurance? It more onerous, and some of the coverage that they have been getting would no longer be extended. So, uh, Well, this is so bad because, I mean, even this year, I don't know how much people have been talking about this, but our mutual friend, Ben Clark, fruit farmer from right. Clarkdale Fruit Farm, um, says this is another year without peaches. Like There was a weather event right. that happened that has essentially decimated the entire peach crop for this 2023 right. year. Right. Yeah, we talked about it. There was a, you know, a cold snap, and that just 
messed everything up for the peaches. Ben Clark was there, and as always, very eloquent and very persuasive. But there were some other, other apple growers as well. And so what we're going to do is we are working with them. We're putting a letter together to the Secretary of Agriculture, kind of outlining the concerns. And we are going to uh, try to push back and to make sure that whatever ends up being decided, that we're not just thinking about the big mega farms, that we're thinking about the medium and small farms, the family farms that are represented here in New England. And so I think we'll be able to have some sway on this. And even it was a good meeting and I get to have some apple cider donuts and coffee and it was wonderful. <laughs> Any meeting that ends like that <laughs> yeah, is I know. Great. But look, at our farmers, they work awfully hard. You know, we have some unique challenges here in the region. We need to make sure that their voices are represented in Washington and that bureaucrats, the USDA down in Washington, however well-intentioned, don't do things that disadvantage them. We want to keep our farms going strong here. Additionally, in your district, Congressman Jim McGovern, McGoverning with McGovern here, uh, you spent some time in your hometown of Worcester. And now I've often introduced you as the ranking member of the Rules Committee, and I didn't even know this committee existed until I saw you tweeting about it, but you were the co-chair of the Congressional Robotics Caucus. Yeah. (laughs) And you went to WPI, Worcester Polytechnic Institute, and talked with some of these big robotics companies, Mass Robotics, Boston Dynamics. What was it that they were showcasing for you as the co-chair of the Congressional Robotics Caucus? They're working with a lot of different groups and, and businesses, you know, trying to come up with ways to help deal with some of the challenges that are faced in our workforce. I, for example, they're, they're working with our nurses, trying to develop a robot that can help assist nurses in, in their job. As you know, we have a nursing shortage and nurses are actually taking on more and more patients. They're working on robots that can go into burning buildings to assist our firefighters to find out whether there's anybody in these burning buildings so that our firefighters themselves don't have to risk their lives as much to go into those buildings and search every single room. I mean, those are the kinds of things. It's fascinating. And it was essentially the, the subject of the most recent episode of Star Wars The Mandalorian, where there's a planet where the robots do all the heavy lifting and all the people, they just you know, experience art and food and dining. Citizens voted against any interruption in droid services. They can't live without. The citizens are no longer required to work know how to survive. And yet we're hearing all these things about I mean, in The Mandalorian, some of the robots turn on them. Let's put that aside for the minute. But AI, is, is this part of your purview as the co-chair of the Congressional Robotics Caucus? Because yeah, well, there have been some real concerns right. about how fast artificial intelligence is advancing to the point where I think a thousand AI programmers said we need to put the brakes on this. Yeah. Yeah, so there's some AI involved in, in, in this. I mean, and one of the things that I feel very strongly about, and one of the reasons why I want to be on this caucus, is, is I want to be able to help influence some of the debate. I mean, for example, when we talk about, you know, robots for military use, for example, I'm really worried about the development of weapons, you know, that rely on artificial intelligence uh, to operate. I don't want that. We want to make sure there's always a man or woman in the loop before a bomb is dropped, but before anybody is killed. And so we want to make sure that as we have these debates, you know, on how we can improve the quality of life for people in this country, that we're also weighing in on what we don't want. And robots and artificial intelligence can't substitute for human interaction, nor can they substitute for humanity. But there are uses that, like I just mentioned, that I think are, are things that we ought to pursue. I mean, sometimes when you go to a supermarket, you see uh, these robots that are, are cleaning the floor while you're <laughs> you're shopping. It was like know. a Zamboni machine cleaning the floors right outside a White Lion Brewery yesterday right. when we were there. I never quite know what to do if, if I bump into it, but, but the bottom <laughs> line, apologize. But the, but the bottom line is that there needs to be a balance, and so this is the beginning of this debate. We want to do what is good, and we want to prevent what is bad. 
Uh, there's a couple follow-ups that we're still trying to get to, Congressman McGovern, from our listeners. One about First Light, which was leaking oil in their hydroelectric dam in Turner's Falls. I believe that's been solved. But then there's been developments in regards to the federal relicensing of that dam. Any follow-up? I know you spoke with Senator Joe Comerford yeah, about no, this I, last I mean, week. All I can say on, on that is that I'm working with Senator Comerford on that and Natalie Blay and you know trying to figure out how best we can make sure. You know, look, I mean, we want them to be a responsible member of our community. You know, if we're going to talk about relicense with FERC, you know, we, we need to get some assurances up front. And so that's that's kind of where we are. And it's worth noting that not all of the stakeholders involved in these conversations with First Light have signed on to this potential new agreement, including the Connecticut River Conservancy, who's not signed on, and uh, Carl Meyer, who's an environmental journalist and activist. There have been some concessions made that seem that they may be taking the river in a positive direction, but there are some reservations from some major stakeholders still. And I think we need to hear all the reservations, and we need to take them all into account, and we need to make sure we proceed in a way that that actually support puts the community and the environment's interest first and foremost. Any follow-up on the Leeds VA story where supposedly yeah. there were a bunch of trees cut down and yeah. fences put off, so, restricting yeah. access to walking trails? So what I'm told is that the VA is kind of putting the finishing touches on a security perimeter fence uh, for the Leeds campus. And unfortunately, the, the installation of the fence, coupled with the installation of, a, of some parking services, required the removal of roughly 75 trees throughout the campus. And what I'm told is that the VA is now partnering with UMass to develop a plan to replant uh, the roughly 75 trees uh, over the next couple of years, and some of the replanting will begin um, this spring. Any reason given why there would need to be um, heightened security at the Leeds VA to this well, level? I couldn't get that answer locally, but I, I am trying to find that out maybe from the national office. My expectation is that there's heightened security over any uh, federal facilities these days. I mean, and and I think, you know, when you see the proliferation of gun violence and, you know, other things happening, that some of that is understandable. On the other hand, you know, I mean, this is part of our community. There needs to be a little bit more transparency as to why some of these things are happening. We talk a lot about food and how great food and uh, farmers and restaurants are in our area, in your district, and just outside of the 413 in your hometown of Worcester, you spent some time with one of the most famous cookbook authors, Mark Bittman who's also done a lot of great work towards food justice and advocacy with his writings in the New York Times for many years, his podcast. And you were working with Worcester chefs. Tell us about what went on uh, with which Worcester chefs and uh, author Mark Bittman. So we had a number of, of, of local restaurants and their chefs on display. They it, it basically prepared food for an event that featured Mark Bittman, uh, where he talked about a whole bunch of stuff and took questions from the audience. I love Mark Bittman. I mean, I, I, for a whole bunch of reasons, not only because of his incredible cookbooks and his writings and his columns and he's got a podcast, but he connects all the dots. I mean, all the stuff that we talk about, you know, when we talk about connecting the dots, it's not just about food. It's about nutritious food. It's not just about nutritious food. It's about, you know, where the food comes from, how we treat our farmers, how we treat our farm workers, you know, how we treat the soil, how meat is raised. And he views food as nourishment, you know, not as profits. That's much of the focus of his message. I think he's somebody that we, we need to be listened to and be inspired by and, and kind of take his direction because that is really the way that so much of the food movement in Massachusetts is moving toward. I mean, we're not there yet, but you know, increasingly more and more farms that you visit are paying attention to the soil, the type of farming, that we're, they're engaged in the debate on, on the climate crisis. Farmers are concerned about how they can afford to pay their workers a decent wage while not 
jacking up the price of food for regular people. And, you know, we need to have that debate as we have this farm bill. Farm workers who work awfully hard, work harder than I do, need to That's for sure. need to make a decent living and need to have benefits and need to be able to put their children in daycare, all that kind of stuff. But it was a great evening and it was, it was a lot of fun. And, and, I, and one of the great things about being involved in this issue is getting to know people like Mark Whitman, who I, I just think, in addition to all the wonderful things I just said about him, is a, is a decent, good man. Yeah, and then you get to go eat delicious food from delicious oh, I know. You know, we had, talented we had, chefs. We had every kind of food you can imagine. It was just, it was wonderful. Congressman Jim McGovern, as always, thank you very much. And if you have a question for the congressman, we talk with him every Thursday. You can email us at thefab413 at nepm.org or shoot us a text, 1-800-639-9120. Thank you, Congressman. And thanks for Saturday night, that incredible event at the Shea Theater with Jimmy Tingle, uh, the benefit of the Franklin uh, County Community Meals Program. That was a wonderful night. A lot of people are grateful that uh, that you did that. It's going to help a lot of people. And it was it was great to see Jimmy Tingle, and he was brilliant as usual. Anyway, but thank you for that, and have a good rest of the week. Thank you. Later in the show, we hit up the new commissioner of the Massachusetts Department of Agriculture, South Deerfield's own Ashley Randall, and pepper her with questions. But up next, Springfield's Mark Oppenheimer, host of the popular Jewish-themed podcast, Unorthodox. Happy Passover! You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. It's Passover, Hag Sameach. And we're pleased to welcome, in the seat we kept open for Elijah, Springfield Mass's Mark Oppenheimer. From his website, he's a father, a husband, a dog owner, a challah baker, not in order of importance. From 2010 to 2016, he wrote the Beliefs column about religion for the New York Times. His fifth and latest book is Squirrel Hill, the Tree of Life synagogue shooting and the soul of a neighborhood. He has also written a book about American religion in the late 1960s, a book about the bar and bat mitzvah in contemporary America, and a memoir of his years as a high school debater. And he co-authored the newest Jewish encyclopedia. He's working on biographies of Ann Landers and Julie Bloom and uh, Judy Bloom, not Julie Bloom. That's a whole different author. Sure. And a history of the Great Princeton anti-Semitism scandal of 1958. He holds a PhD in religious studies from Yale, but believes only medical doctors should be called doctor. His radio work includes pieces for This American Life and Snap Judgment, and I guess now this show. But right now, his main audio project is Unorthodox, a podcast about Jewish life and culture. It's a production of Tablet Magazine, where he's a senior editor. Despite living in New Haven now, he tells us he represents Springfield, Mass. He sings the praises of Friendlies, of the late great Leechmere department store on Boston Road, of the Valley Advocate, of his days as a delivery boy for the Springfield Daily News, and of seeing NBA star Travis Best in his high school days. And we want to talk to him about his take on Western Mass and Judaism and how not Jewish the Springfield where he grew up was. Welcome to the Fabulous 413, Mark Oppenheimer. This is so great to be here. I've been wanting to make this debut ever since you started recently. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, you <laughs> sent this really wonderful email to us very early on in the show. Right. I said, have me on your show. I begged to be on your show, basically. <laughs> is what I said, well, the high holy days are coming up. Maybe so, we'll yeah. do that one. Yes. Yeah, so tell me about the um, where you grew up in Springfield and, the, as we alluded to, how not Jewish uh, okay. your experience was as now the preeminent voice of podcasting in the world I guess at least English-speaking Judaism, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I'm I am the English language's leading Jewcaster, and, um, and I will I will challenge anyone. I mean, except for my two co-hosts on Unorthodox, I will challenge anyone to take that title away from me. I grew up on Bronson Terrace between Trafton and Dickinson, not uh, in Springfield in Forest mm -hmm. Park, not far from the Longmeadow line, mm -hmm. um, but not Longmeadow. Ever since. 
Not Longmeadow. I have spent, oh, I'm 48. I've spent a good 30 of those years ever since I left home telling people who hear that I'm from Springfield and say, oh, you're from Longmeadow. I said, no, I just said Springfield. Can you hear? <laughs> right, but you're not from Springfield. You're from Longmeadow. No, I'm actually from Springfield. Um, you know, that was a real bone of contention. And, of course, the Jewish Community Center is literally on the border. It's it's on Converse Street between Springfield and Longmeadow. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it was. there was a lot of... There were some rumbles. I'm not going to say that I didn't get into some scrapes over it. Um, But most of my rumbling I saved for the Little League, which I should point out in Springfield in the 1980s was organized by Catholic Parish. (laughs) So if you want to know how (laughs) un-Jewish... Springfield was when you played Little League Baseball, you saw, you had to sign up for a Catholic church team, Holy Name, Holy Cross, Our Lady of Sacred Heart, Our Lady of Hope. So <laughs> wow. it was it. Was, but, you know, th- that's America, baby. I mean, it was, it was great fun. It was a wonderful place to grow up. And I kind of grew up in the other side of it as a Catholic kid in the outskirts of Boston, where I literally knew one Jewish family in my entire town. And so I'm imagining that that were you that one Jewish family to the people that you were playing baseball with? I, I mean, there were scattered others, but I would say that in Springfield proper, so not Northampton Amherst, not Longmeadow, in Springfield proper, we were pretty thin on the ground. I mean, most of when I was in public school in any given classroom, I was likely to be the only uh, Jewish kid, um, which of course made me the the authority on all things Jewish. So right. I was proud to as the spokesperson like for the entire many, people. <laughs> exactly. I, there are many people who believe false things about Judaism because they asked a seven-year-old Mark <laughs> Oppenheimer, what does this mean in Hebrew? And I, I don't know, but I'll make something up. <laughs> What's interesting about the Unorthodox podcast is that it is not, you know, you're not all rabbis that are, are you, you know, you no, have a, de- a doctorate in, in religious studies or theology um, in regards to Judaism, but, you know, you're coming at it from a very... I don't want to say secular, but in some ways secular look yeah. at Judaism. And Judaism is interesting in the sense that it is both a religion and sort and an ethnicity, a culture. Mm-hmm. Why is that it's, the kind of angle that you wanted to to bring to yeah. the conversation? So, so eight years ago when we started Unorthodox, um, there were a few Jewish podcasts out there, but they were all pretty much Orthodox religious podcasts trying to get people to be more religious. You know, it was as if every Catholic podcast were just the local bishop talking to you about why you should come to mass mm-hmm. and uh, to put it in your language, Monty. Mar-on. And, um, so, <laughs> so what we thought we should do was have a podcast that actually represented the way culturally engaged, but non-specialist, non-rabbi Jews might sit around the kitchen table and talk and talk about Jewish culture, talk about the Jewish obsession with finding Hollywood stars who are Jewish, uh, counting how many Major League Baseball players are Jewish. I think there are four right now. And they all played and for Catholic-based teams when they were in little school. All of them <laughs> in Springfield. Yeah. In, yeah. Uh, so we just wanted to do something that a lot of Jews would recognize as how Jews talk when they're amongst each other. Mm-hmm. And so we started it not knowing it, if it would go anywhere, and here we are seven million downloads later, and it, it went somewhere. So, it, yeah, but we're three different Jews. None of us uh, none of us ordained in any way. Um, one of my co-hosts is an immigrant from Israel. I mean, he, he speaks perfect English. He's, he's gone native. He's married an American, but he's Israeli. One, uh, Stephanie Butnick, grew up in Great Neck, Long Island, where she only knew Jews. Mm. I mean, she literally had to go away to college to meet any Gentiles. Um, <laughs> and then... And then there was me who had to go away to college to meet another Jew. So it's it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. But as I said in my letter pleading to be a guest on, uh, on The Fabulous 413, um, you, you know, like uh, I grew up in, in Springfield listening to, to WFCR occasionally. 
But you know, back then it was classical music. You know, it still is. It still is for six hours it, a day, and we love those listeners. Who, who, can I say? <laughs> yes. Can I say? By the way, so I, I you know, I, I'm up. I still listen to it when I'm up visiting my parents who still live in Springfield. God bless you, because it's actually one of. It, it was part, the only ecosystem in the country, the only terrestrial radio ecosystem where you could hear the the great classical music of, uh, you know, the great Western art music, as well as jazz, as well as other traditions, great music. And I actually think it's a huge loss that so many public radio stations have decided music is not part of their DNA. So bless you guys for keeping it up. Agreed, agreed. Yes. So, the thing about cultural Judaism, especially uh, as a Gentile whose favorite holiday actually is Seder. So how do we nice. go about getting ourselves invited to our friends Seder's? Uh, yeah. Did we miss yours yet last night? Because I hung no, over from the so four glasses of I wine. I don't have inns anymore and I'm too awkward to ask properly. So how do I do this? Okay, so here's what you do. I'll give you. I'll give you the uh, the pro tips, the life hacks, as it were. First of all, um, you were invited to mine next year. So yes. if you put, yes. I'm not going to remember. I'm not going to remember because I have five kids. I'm busy. But if you <laughs> go on the Great Wide Web and find out when Passover 2024 is, and make a note like one month out, bother Oppenheimer about his seder. Uh, <laughs> you're you're invited. We would Thank love you. to have you. We we. Um, but honestly, the other thing is. If you reach out to any local rabbi and say, I am a curious, I'm a Gentile ally. I like to call you guys allies. I am a Gentile ally and I want to, uh, I want to go to a Seder. I want to, you know, I love it as a holiday. I want to be with my Jewish friends. Can you hook me up? Most rabbis kind of have a little mental note in their brain of which of their congregations members have a few extra seats around the Seder table where they can can absorb some people. So that's what you would do, I think. You know, call call Justin David at the the synagogue in Northampton. Congregation Bene Israel in Springfield. Mm -hmm. Full there disclosure or the guidance Rabbi Justin the, David, you know, I call him my rabbi, even though I'm a Gentile. And I was like, go. Rabbi, come on the show on Thursday. We'll talk about Passover. And he said, I can't there you go. because it's or Passover. Because <laughs> it's Passover, right. Unlike, unlike a heathen like me. Or, you know, Amy Walk down there at Bethel in Springfield. I mean, just call a rabbi and say, I want to get in on some of that good four glasses of wine action. Yes. And a little teaser for tomorrow. We will be tasting kosher for Passover wines. If you haven't gone through all of the seders that you may be going through uh, on the show in our wine Thunderdome tomorrow. And Indeed. Is there a gender neutral term for mitzvahs now? I thought that there was. But okay, I might so be wrong. you mean like a bar, a bar mitzvah and a bat mitzvah? Yes. And the that bar would a, be for, okay. for, for right. so boy identifying and, and bot for girl identifying. Right. And so, so and yeah. Keep in mind, right. So this is the, the rite of passage that a 12 year or 13 year old uh, young person goes through to have access both to adult obligations. Uh, responsibilities and obligations, but also privileges right. in Judaism, uh, the, like the privilege of fasting on Yom Kippur and being hungry for 24 hours. <laughs> so the the terms which are Aramaic, um, actually older than, than about as old as Hebrew, but it, it was actually the language Jesus spoke, bar mitzvah, would be son of the commandment, bat mitzvah, daughter of the commandment. You're hearing two gender neutral variations now. One is using the plural, um, b'nai mitzvah, B apostrophe N-A-I, B'nai Mitzvah, which means really sons of the commandment, but it really is used as children of the commandment. Like so congregation sort of like B'nai Israel in Northampton, exactly. which we just mentioned. Right. You are one smart Gentile. So thank you. The so the and I don't I don't say that lightly. So the <laughs> 
B'nai is kind of like the they, them of Hebrew, though mm-hmm. it still is masculine. The other one you'll see, and this is just an invention, is B apostrophe, B'mitzvah. And you're seeing that my synagogue has a B'mitzvah coming up. <laughs> and so that's that's one you're getting more and more. I think that's going to win in the end. Cool. Uh, you've also been invited by um, Jill Kaufman to Seder tonight, Khalees. Uh, she was listening to this segment. <laughs> the New England Public Media reporter Jill Kaufman just texted me saying, please tell Khalees to come tonight. She's making matzah balls right now. Khalees, you have to go. You have, see, here's the thing. When people invite you, they really want you. And and every, a Seder's not complete unless you have to pull up an extra chair at the last minute. So, That's I, so great. I think you should go. Um we're speaking with Mark Oppenheimer, who is the host of Unorthodox, the number one Jewish podcast in the world, and also who has a newsletter at markoppenheimer.com. And your podcast is amazing. And the, the one about uh, Passover that's the most recent is actually one from uh, 2020 when people had to shelter or, you know, like yeah. socially distance for Passover and their own Passover seders. What, being an unorthodox in your podcast, yeah. what are some of your favorite non-traditional, new traditional Passover Seder things that either you do or that you've heard of that you just think are so much fun? Yeah, so one of the classic ones, and we don't do this just because I'm an old fuddy-duddy and, you know, I just haven't, I don't innovate. I just, I'm, I just do what, what, you know, what I've always been doing. But over the last few decades, a lot of people have begun adding an orange to the Seder plate. And that is seen as a, a gesture for um, putting an orange, you know, next to the horseradish and, and the shank bone and the other traditional things on the Seder plate. And that is a gesture toward um, gender equality, both, uh, you know, in terms of sex, but also in terms of sexual orientation. Um, and the, 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 the urban legend is that a rabbi once said, you know, there will be female rabbis when there's a, an orange on the Seder plate. <laughs> like that could ever happen. <laughs> so then they started then they started putting an orange on the Seder plate um, to sort of say, ha, see, anything, anything can happen in Judaism. So you get the orange on the Seder plate a lot. You also get like this year, some people were setting an extra seat at the Seder um, in honor of Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter who's mm. been taken hostage by Russia, by the Russian authorities. Um, you, you, every year kind of people will do a different thing. There'll be a kind of a, th- a trend that goes around of setting an extra empty seat for so-and-so or putting something on the Seder plate for you know, people suffering in Ukraine or whatever. So the thing about the Seder is there is a core there of things you have to do, but a lot of it is optional and flexible. So you can actually, and you can insert any reading you want. I mean, you have to tell the story of of leaving Pharaoh's Egypt for, for freedom, but you can add other stories as you will. So it's a kind of wonderfully flexible ceremony. Since this weekend is kind of the confluence of Ramadan and Passover and Easter, Going back through your your back episodes, you have an episode about kosher ham, and I <laughs> just had questions. So, so if you could, I mean, just generally, what yeah. even is that about? Okay, so that that's I love it. You're such, this is such a geeky question. This is the kind of thing our our Jewish listeners write in about. So, because of you know, obviously, the Bible, the Torah, the Old Testament says you cannot eat. Um, I mean, among the animals you can't eat is the pig, is is swine. So you can't eat ham. But what about ham that's created in a petri dish, right? What about um, you know food that's grown rather than killed? Um, is that really a ham? So there's people. There are people who are trying to develop um, 
kind of fake meat that is that is actually ham but is not from a pig. It was never a pig. So there's a kind of question that the rabbis debate um, about that. Another one that's actually quite controversial is can you have stuff that's bacon flavored, like bacon bits, oh, or, you know, those fake bacon, bacon bits. Bacon, yeah. And it's not actually bacon. It's not actually pork. But there's another Jewish principle at stake, which is called um, – called marat ayan, which which in Hebrew means sort of how does it appear to the outside world. Uh, so you, mm-hmm. the idea is you are always being watched to see what an upstanding person does. So if an upstanding per, if, if someone sees you sprinkling bacon bits on your salad and they don't know that it's fake bacon, they might think that you're endorsing the eating of bacon. And so you should avoid even fake bacon or fake ham because – the unsuspecting person looking to you for guidance as to looking at you to be an example of how to live might get the wrong idea and think it's real. And so even if it's fake, there are people who say it's not kosher. So this is, but you know, there will be no definitive answer on this. The rabbis will fight about this for the next five millennia. Springfield's Mark Oppenheimer, who now lives Always. in New Haven. We, <laughs> we hope to make you our, can you be our Jewish correspondent? I would like to be your Southern I-91 correspondent. I love it. Could I do that? Can you give us very quickly before you favorite New Haven pizza place? We're trying to find the best pizza in the 413. Oh, Moderna. Good luck. Moderna? Is that what you said? Yeah. Modern. Oh, Modern. Modern Modern on State Street. Okay. On State Street. Yeah. All right. Great. That is great to know. Springfield's Mark Oppenheimer, host of the Unorthodox podcast. And his newsletter, markoppenheimer.com, chiming in. On Passover, Hag Sameach to you, Mark. Thank you so much. Hag Sameach to you both. Happy Passover. Thank you so much. Sure, sure. Thank you. Coming up, the new commissioner of the Massachusetts Department of Agriculture, South Deerfield, Ashley Randall. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Time for our Local Hero Spotlight with Phil Corman from CISA, the Local Hero folks. Full disclosure, an underwriter of New England Public Media and Ashley Randall. From Chris Larrabee's February 27th article in the Greenfield Recorder, with a background in showing cattle at fairs and working on the family farm in South Deerfield, the state's new agriculture commissioner has a Franklin County flair to her. South Deerfield native Ashley Randall has been tapped by the Healy Driscoll administration as the 21st Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources MDAR commissioner. MDAR, this is my edition, always sounds like a planet in like the Mustafar system from Star Wars. You are the chosen one! Uh, beginning March 6th, Randall will become, or now has become, the first woman appointed to lead the department as she takes on the role of ensuring Massachusetts food supply is secure and helping guide the state's more than 7,200 farms through a changing climate. Now, I'm taking that as both literal and figurative in the world of agriculture and farming and food security issues that we are we experienced as a nation that our food systems are broken when there was a, a pandemic. And also, if you talk to any farmers, they're dealing with literal climate change. But Ashley Randall, welcome to the Fabulous. 413. Thank you, Monty and Khalees. It's great to be here today. Thank you for coming. I know that we have more important things to ask you, but first I want to ask you about cows because folks that grew up with cows kind of seem to be a particular, for lack of better word, breed. Like cows end up being really important and very special to people who grow up with them. What was it like growing up on a dairy farm? So I grew up in South Deerfield and we had about a 60 cow herd, 
of dairy cattle. I took an interest at a young age to Guernsey cattle, which are the fawn and white cattle that you may see. They're known for their rich milk quality and the beta carotene. And I grew up showing in the 4-H dairy program. And ultimately, my favorite cow was named Pistachio Pie. And we now have <laughs> descendants of Pistachio Pie on the farm today. Tell me they all also have nut names. They have pea pie names. So pecan <laughs> pie, pumpkin pie. We've been running out of some names, though, so we're trying to get creative. You probably have peach already, but I think you're going to have to start branching out into tarts and galettes. I'll add that to the list, but we'd welcome any name suggestions. So keep the names coming. Our engineer says pudding pie. We have not had a pudding pie. Well done, Betsy Cordes. <laughs> Is your family farm still operational in South Deerfield as a dairy farm? So we do have cattle still in Deerfield. We have about 40 head of cattle and our focus now is really on the genetic side and our breeding program more than the milk production side. What do you mean by the genetics of it all? So we still show our dairy cattle. So with the genetics program, we're looking to build the perfect cow basically. Whoa. And Pistachio Pie was actually supreme champion of the World <laughs> Dairy Expo, which is similar for people that have dogs to the Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show. Wow. I don't think you could have made that sound more Star Wars than you just did. Exactly. <laughs> I knew it, M-Dog. Otherwise a mature clone would take a lifetime to grow. Now we can do it in half the time. I see. Now you're dealing with the state government in regards to these agricultural issues. And uh, speaking of dairy, which you grew up on this dairy farm, there is a, a dairy tax credit in Governor Healy's new budget, increasing the statewide cap from $6 million to $8 million to protect the state's dairy farmers from fluctuation in wholesale milk prices. What's your take on that part of the budget? And is that helpful to dairy farmers like your family was? So we have about 110 dairy farms left in Massachusetts across the state, and we hear from many of the farmers how instrumental the tax credit has been to keep them in business. With rising costs of production, we know that it's harder than ever to break even or even to make a, a slight amount of money from farming and particularly dairy farming. I know that the dairy community has welcomed this and are very appreciative of the Healy Driscoll administration advocating on their behalf for this increase. Last year, every month was triggered because the costs of production were higher than what the farmers were making for their milk. Mm. The reason this tax credit is so important is that if you're a dairy farmer and you're selling your milk wholesale, you do not decide the price for what you sell your milk wholesale. So because you cannot decide it, you are stuck oftentimes for months or years losing money on every hundred weight that you're selling and you have no choice. So the tax credit in Massachusetts keeps these farms going through the months and the years where they're not getting paid enough since they can't charge what they need to charge. Well, that brings me to the federal government and the USDA. So is it fair to say that MDAR, Mass Department of Agricultural Resources, is the state version of USDA? Yes, that's correct. So then what is your relationship with USDA when it comes to things like advocating for differences in fairer pricing when it comes to, say, dairy or, or other supports from the federal government? So we have a close working relationship with USDA, mainly through their grant programs. And we've been able to leverage several grant programs in recent years. For instance, through their Farm and Ranch Stress Assistance Network, we were able to establish the first ever mental health program at the department. We were also able to leverage 
leveraged seven and a half million in funding last year to work with underserved farmers, whether that is women-owned businesses, veteran-owned businesses, BIPOC-owned farms. We were able to contract with them to be able to allow them to purchase food from underserved farms to then distribute to underserved communities across the state. Jill Kaufman from the NEPM News Department has a question in in regards to the USDA and how uh, MDAR and its new director from South Deerfield originally, Ashley Randall, collaborate. She says, we know that the federal farm bill has a significant amount of money for technical assistance to help mass farmers learn and adapt drought mitigating practices like low-till and no-till practices and how to engineer efficient watering systems. How does the state of mass work with the funding stream? Are farmers making requests? Are there enough trainers? And will this money go back to the feds if it doesn't get used? We're very mindful of being able to utilize that funding And I would add that we've been able to utilize some of the funding through ARPA and the federal dollars through COVID that came through USDA for our Food Security Infrastructure Grant Program, which Governor Healy filed this year to make a permanent line item. This year, the program also funded drought-related projects after last year with that devastating drought that many of our farmers had to weather. So we're mindful of the USDA programs and how they align with our current state programming. And anytime we see an opportunity to leverage those funds, we're taking advantage of it for our farmers. And do the farmers apply for it? And do we lose the money if if it doesn't get used? The farmers do apply for the programs. Many of our grant programs are overprescribed at the department. There is a lot of demand, especially coming out of COVID and, and with climate change impacts, we're seeing more farms that really want to be able to adapt and mitigate. If we don't utilize those federal dollars, it's been a little different in recent years because of the pandemic and with that federal funding. So we're able to expand the dollars for future years and they don't revert back. So we're very mindful of that. We're speaking with Ashley Randall, the brand new director of MDAR, the Mass Department of Agriculture Resources, first female director of that branch of our state government, and Phil Corman from CESA, the local hero folks. So, Commissioner, I'm kind of curious if you can share with listeners when you're, and I know you've done this when you were the deputy commissioner, when you get together with commissioners all over the country, how would you compare and contrast agriculture in Massachusetts with other states and agribusiness? One of the advantages I would say we have in Massachusetts is our farmers are very resilient and adaptive, and they're also mindful that we have the advantage of 7 million consumers in the state. We're known for our direct-to-market sales. We consistently rank in the top five in the country. So when I talk to colleagues in the Midwest or the Western states where it's really big ag, as they say, I feel that we have a unique advantage in that many of our farms are creative and looking to be more resilient and adaptive in terms of what their business operations look like. Speaking of new things, there's been an announcement through the Healy School Administration that we're getting a rural affairs director. How is that office going to interact with your office at MDAR? My understanding is the director of rural affairs will really be a circuit rider to all the agencies across the state. And I'm really excited about that because the majority of our farms are in rural communities. We certainly have a strong urban ag sector that's growing. But when it comes to the unique needs and challenges that are faced by our farms in rural areas, I really see this as a partnership with the new director. And I'm excited to be able to work with them to find ways to further support our farms and food system producers in rural communities. 
Coming up, more with the new commissioner of Massachusetts Department of Agriculture, South Deerfield's Ashley, Ashley Randall and CSIS Phil Corbin. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Speaking with Phil Corman from CESA, the local hero folks, and Ashley Randall, the new commissioner of Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources. <laughs> we got it right, finally. So most of the farms in Massachusetts are in rural spaces, and that is very important. But I just moved to Springfield, which is a food desert. So I'm curious about what urban agricultural initiatives you have going in this administration. So in 2015, the department actually launched an urban agriculture program, and we have a grant program to help with community gardens, as well as access to land, and helping to pay for some of those costs of land. We often see in urban communities such as Springfield or Worcester, amazing productivity on even a quarter acre of land. So not a lot of land is needed if we're able to provide the support in some of the communities that wanna have an urban farm started. I know here in Springfield, gardening the community is both an urban destination and also a great spot for youth to become involved in agriculture, which is something that we're looking to do more of across the state because we're trying to build that next generation of food and ag leaders. And I think that gardening the community has set a great example in the work that they're doing. Lizzo Gilvey is amazing. Lizzo Gilvey, shout out. <laughs> She's a superhero. Absolutely. Um, you're new in your position at MDAR, but like you've worked in the department before and now you have a chance and maybe a platform to work on some things that you've maybe had on the back burner. What are some projects that are coming up through MDAR or some things that are on the horizon just for the Department of Agriculture in general that make you excited about where agriculture is headed in Massachusetts? Well, there's a lot to be excited about. I would say that farmers face a great deal of challenges, but I see them as an opportunity for us at the department to be able to assist them and to uplift their businesses and their farms to be more resilient going forward. Certainly for me, equity and environmental justice is a strong focus, and we're really taking a thoughtful and an intentional approach in looking at all of our programs at the department and how we can make them more accessible, whether it's through language access services or through one-on-one -on -one technical assistance to farmers that maybe haven't interacted with the department before and being able to make sure that everyone is at the table and has a voice in those conversations as we're advancing agriculture. I'd also say that youth programming and youth development is an area that we haven't really focused on at the department previously. And if we wanna build that next generation of leaders, I think that it's really important for us to continue to partner and work with the agricultural high schools in the school, in, excuse me, across the state, as well as the 4-H and FFA organizations and youth development. So those are just a few of the areas. And I'll also just mention a shout out to CESA, the Buy Locals are a partner in our work. And it's really important that if we wanna to continue to move mass agriculture forward, we build that strong network with the bi-locals because they have those connections in the communities, whether it's schools or restaurants 
or one-on-one with the farms and maybe identifying farms that we didn't even know were out there. So it's really critical for us to have that partnership across the food system. Ashley Randall from South Deerfield originally is the new commissioner of the Department of Agricultural Resources in Massachusetts, MDAR, which um, I believe you can take the Millennium Falcon and make the Kessel run in 12 parsecs um, from that system. Uh, You, as we mentioned, are the first female in this role in an historic administration in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts with the Healy Driscoll administration. How does that factor into your stepping up into this role and was it a surprise was the timing a surprise to you being put into this position by the Healy Driscoll administration despite the fact that you were the deputy commissioner for what four and a half years I can say that I'm extremely grateful and humbled by this opportunity I've said it before and I've been saying it a a lot over the last month that it really is a privilege of a lifetime and I recognize it as a privilege because I get to advocate on behalf of all of our farmers and food system members across the state. And I'm really excited to work with the Healy Driscoll administration and the team that they've built because it is a very strong team. A lot of females in positions of power and I think that's really exciting to see and it's really inspiring. I know growing up, I would have loved to have seen more female leaders in agriculture and now to be the first female commissioner at the department it's not something that I take lightly and I hope that as the next generation of leaders come up they look and see that they too can have leadership positions in agriculture. Ashley Randall from South Deerfield from the fabulous 413 the new head of the Mass Department of Agricultural Resources Commissioner Ashley Randall and Phil Corman from CESA, the local hero folks who are partners with MDAR in trying to show people why it's important to support local agriculture. You can find out about all our local heroes here in the Fabulous 413 if you go to buylocalfood.org. Thank you both. It's quite a Star Wars heavy show, kind of inadvertently. Also, like to that and what you were saying earlier, and I meant to say earlier, droids are people, fight me. Yeah, we were talking to Congressman Jim McGovern about how he is the co-chair of the Robotics Caucus, which I um, was today years old when I learned that that was a thing. And uh, <laughs> yeah, he is, uh, you're, you're on the side that the robots aren't going to turn on us, that they're people and that they'll ultimately be like c 3 Well, no, no. no? Uh, my belief is that in, in the world of Star Wars, which I have run games in because I GM sometimes. What does GM mean for non-nerds? Game master, right. I run Star Wars games. Mm-hmm. But in those, in that world, droids are people. They have their own language. They have their own autonomy. Like they should stop it. Like it's a clear parallel to slavery. Like mm. clear civil yeah. rights parallels, and in, I think intentionally so. So like I've had games where we've had to like stop play and like okay, so so we're gonna have a talk about how. I, as a black woman, and your GM is here running this game. And I know you think you're doing this to be, like, part of the world, but, like, we're not having it. Droids are people. Yeah, I think you should uh, watch the most recent episode of The Mandalorian that came out yesterday, too. Also, there's the whole, like, robot uprising part of Lando, which might be the only good part of, not Lando, that was not that, the Han Solo movie. It should have been the Lando movie, but the Han Solo movie, which is the only good part of that movie. There was some other good parts, but I still, I'm I'm waiting for more of that, um, that era Han Solo, and of course... The Donald Glover Lando. Well, now we really Star Wars nerded out Look. right now. Look, I'm about to start Picard season three tonight, too. So also do the Star Trek <laughs> thing. I'll also say that the uh, the story about East Hampton and the use of the word ladies is a microaggression, which is now a national news story. We did get another text at 1-800-639-9120 from Tracy from Florence 
says, hello, I'm chiming in on the East Hampton School Committee's silliness. It's my understanding that a microaggression is defined loosely as something, statement, action, incident, that undermines members of a marginalized group such as a racial or ethnic minority. Marginalized groups, by definition, have no power. A group that can send a police officer to someone's home in the middle of the night has power. And for those who don't know, that is how uh, Vito Perone was notified that he had a job, like after midnight by the police, which is weird in and of That's itself, which makes itself. me think that there's more to this story for sure. Uh, and cannot be a victim of a microaggression. The action by a local school committee, this action by a local school committee is an embarrassment. That's you get from, served papers to serve? Yeah. Huh. Why can't you wait till the morning? It's not like he's starting the next day. So I feel like this is going to be a story that continues like to unfold. Yes, there there seems to be a lot bubbling under the surface here, and hopefully some of it will come more to light as we go along. And I think if you uh, want to continue to talk about this uh, lady's microaggression there, you can text us at 1-800-639-9120. We also had that great conversation with Mark Oppenheimer about Passover, and it's Ramadan, and it's Easter. And if you're celebrating any of those things, and you have an unorthodox or fun or quirky a uh, holiday tradition that you want to share with like us? the fact that I serve rabbit for Easter. Tell me. Oh, that's... <laughs> I didn't dawn on me how morbid that was. Only just, just now? Said it. I well, say it all the time. Like, I, I, I'm like, I'm, like, I'm perverse, so I serve yeah. rabbit for Easter. Yeah, and, you know... To each their own way. How Rabbit do you prepare it? It depends on the. It depends on how I'm feeling. I've done it as cassoulet. I've done it as. I love um, I've done it as dorawat, like the I, Ethiopian I dish. Is. Okay. The, I've done it in several ways. I've like roasted it with ap- apricots, all sorts. If it, you do, do anything fun like that for any of the holidays <laughs> or any holidays that we don't know about, let us know. One eight hundred six three nine nine one two zero, or you can email us the fab four one three. At NEPM.org. I, We'd love to hear it because yeah. more holiday traditions, the better. I make carbonara. That's just about it. And there's nothing <laughs> weird about that. Tomorrow in the fabulous 413, back into the wine Thunderdome. We'll taste two kosher for Passover wines with provisions. And for Easter, we'll have a British versus U.S. Cadbury egg tasting with NEPM reporter Liz Roman. We'll chat with Michael League from the band Snarky Puppy, who are playing at UMass this Monday. And it's Live Music Friday with local bluegrass band Poor Monroe, who are playing at Gateway City Arts in Holyoke on Saturday. Our director is Tony, sorting the junk inbox done. Our engineer is Betsy Brownies Make It All Better, Cortis. And babies make it all better, Cortis. <laughs> Our technical team is Bart, practicing his ninja skills, Rankin. Kara, Formula One of Boxes, Foster. And Punk Rock Dubay. Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Jay Giles Band, Suitcase, Junket, Homebody, and The John Williams. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. See you tomorrow on The Fabulous 413.